Recorded live. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Stroke Diva Fabulous Show. I have a wonderful show for you tonight. My guest is Rhonda Joy McLean. I didn't ask you that before. Am I pronouncing it right, McLean? Yes, you are. Okay. And she is the president at the Greater New York Chapter of the Lynx Incorporated. She is the chair board of directors at the Better Business Bureau. She is also Deputy Deputy General Counsel for Time, Inc. She is the Deputy General Counsel for Time, Time Inc., but we're working with the Women's Network, and we'll probably talk about that a little bit later. And she's okay. also Legal Advisor for Time, Inc., and that is a mouthful, and I hope I got <laughs> it all out. <laughs> so welcome, Rhonda, to the Stroke Diva Fabulous Show. Thank you so much, Kamari, for having me. It's my privilege to be on with you tonight. Oh, I'm so happy we finally got it going on. So tell our audience, uh, give us your background. Well, I grew up in Smithfield, North Carolina, quite a long time ago, and my parents were music teachers, so I'm also a musician. I sing and I play many musical instruments, and you would too if you had my mother. But I was very fortunate. I'm the oldest of two, and my brother is a music professor and minister of music at a church in Richmond, but I chose to go into the business world. And the short version of my background is that um, my parents were not from the South. I was born in Chicago, where my dad's from, and my mom's from Buffalo. But they met at Talladega College, which is a black college in Talladega, Alabama, and they studied music there and eventually moved to North Carolina um, because they were recruited there to teach. Because at that time in the early 1950s, there were two you know, parallel school systems because Jim Crow was still legal. So there were black schools and white schools. My parents were recruited to black uh, schools, even though they had um, – you know, themselves going to integrated schools. So when I was in the eighth grade, after having been in black schools all my life, uh, but in the summers going to visit my grandparents in Illinois and in New York and having seen sort of a different way of life, um, after Brown v. Board of Education was um, um, sent down, rendered by the Supreme Court of the United States, nothing happened in North Carolina for many years. Uh, But in 1965, we were finally given the opportunity to integrate the schools, and two other young ladies and myself integrated the high school in my town. I was 13, and they were both 14. We're all still friends today. And uh, it was quite a time. It was very much like Little Rock. If you saw Eyes on the Prize, it was difficult and challenging, but we stuck together. We had strong family, strong community support, and church support, and we all three of us graduated and did, have gone on to have successful careers. I'm so glad that you shared that story. You just gave, you know, we know and learn about our history when it comes to the Supreme Court and, and all that it does and sometimes doesn't do, but that's a different conversation. Um, <laughs> That, that you gave us that history, that really lets me know that's why you kind of went into the law field. 
Exactly. Um, I really thought I would follow my parents into music education, and I have a master's from A&T in education. I thought really I would go on. But at the time, I came out of college in the 70s when the civil rights movement was in full swing, the women's rights movement, the gay movement, and the anti-war movement. So I was in the middle of all of that as a young person and wanted to contribute to sort of progress of our people and also of our nation, as I understood it at that time. And I just, I had started out majoring in music and I just didn't see how, you know, you know, unless I could carry around this piano on my back, I wasn't sure how I could contribute to the revolution because it really felt like we were participating in a major change movement, which of course we we were. And um, I'm very grateful for all that has happened, the things that were difficult and the things that seemed a little easier. Um, but at the time, I didn't really think of being a lawyer. It was really my mentors. I had wonderful people both in my family and without who saw something in me that I, I don't think was able to see in myself as a young woman in my 20s, uh, working and living in Greensboro, North Carolina, setting up Head Start programs after college. And um, after some time, you know, of kind of study and prayer, I did decide to try law school. I didn't know that I would finish. I thought, let me just try it because in the civil rights movement, what you see is every single thing, almost every bit of progress we made was because of work by lawyers, you know, Charles Housen and Thurgood Marshall, all of the wonderful people who graduated from Howard Law School and a number of other white civil rights uh, lawyers who worked with them from all over the country. Um, so I felt like I wanted to understand more about the law and how it impacts our lives. And so, you know, at the age of 27, I went to law school, and I've never regretted it. I can see why not. And I would think, being part of the struggle, that you would want to continue and make a difference and share that. And so for those of, those of us coming in later, you know, of course, we've benefited from the whole civil rights movement which is yes. changing now because our young people are not being taught their history. And yeah. so for them, they're kind of just breezing along, not really understanding and knowing why they have the freedom that they have today. I think that's right. And, you know, I think about it with my own uh, cousins and my own, our children and grandchildren. On the one hand, it's not like you want people to be, you know, angry all the time. But on the other hand, what we know is that if you don't know your history, um, you may be doomed to repeat it. And we see with all these shootings and with the way some of our young people treat other young people of color um, and people just in general that we, you know, some of the, the black self-love that we work so hard to generate in the 50s, 60s, and 70s and beyond, I see, you know, we're losing a bit of that. So I do worry that, you know, we don't know enough about our past because you really need to know where you come from, and then you build on that to then strike out and, and, and march forward confidently into the future. So I do agree with you. I think, excuse me, it's important for us to know our history and to cherish it. You know, I think there's nothing to be ashamed of. I'm always um, amazed at how well our people did when, in fact, they weren't really intended to survive. And not only did they survive, but with the little bit they were given, they, they were able to thrive. And then they gave us the ability to move forward. And I really, that's my whole mantra is it's all about moving forward, not just myself, but everybody that I'm associated with. 
And that's important. It's that old adage of each one should teach one. Exactly. Exactly. I really have always believed in that. I was very blessed to have a strong family. My mom's the oldest of five. She was the first in her family to go to college. Her mother had a sixth-grade education. But it was clear that, you know, we received strong foundations of both faith in God, faith in family, and the belief that education was the way to move us all forward. And not that everyone would do the same thing and everyone would reach, you know, the same heights, but that we all, with whatever we were given, would use that not only to move ourselves forward, but to help others as well. And that's in my DNA, and I worked hard to get it in the rest of my family's DNA. And I believe that's why I'm in all these organizations, because that's what I saw my mother do. She was a church musician, a music teacher in public school, She helped to found several smaller groups in our little town, and the purpose of all of that was to raise money to send children to college who might not otherwise have a way to get there. And I'm always, I mean, I marvel at what our ancestors, you know, my grandparents, you know, my parents, what they were able to do with such limited resources, not being able to, you know, get an education, not being able to, you know, own a home, not able to, you know, have the health care that they deserved. And we have all of that now because someone, someone sacrificed that for us. That's so true, and I agree that I think it's so important for us to understand that a lot of what's going on, you know, women's rights, um, the the gay rights movement, so much of that is based on the teachings of Dr. Martin Luther King and the other members of the black civil rights movement because they really worked hard. They looked at the law. They looked at the Bible. They studied, you know, Mr. Gandhi's principles of nonviolent resistance. I mean, they really were scholars in the art of ways to move forward when, in fact, you don't have power um, or not power in the traditional sense. And I've always been very grateful for their teachings and have tried hard to live by those that you're not – intimidated, you don't allow other people to intimidate you just because other people may think that you're inferior, but you don't have to believe what they believe about yourself. And I found that that ability to be self-confident when people around you are just determined to try to put you down has served me well and many, many others, you know, millions of us. We would not be where we are today if we had not had self-confidence that were given to us by our family, or maybe it was a Sunday school teacher or a Girl Scout troop leader or someone, a mentor, someone who believed in us. And I believe that we now need to pass that on to the next generation. You're absolutely correct. It's when we think about, you know, people died for us to have the right to vote, and now some of us don't want to vote. It's really shocking. Yes, and my girlfriends and I, my co-authors and I, and we'll talk a little bit about the book later, but we all, you know, we're just struck by people that we knew, you would argue successful people, who decided that they didn't care to vote. And I'm like, there's no way. My grandmother would sit up in her grave if I did not go to every single opportunity to vote. And I also participate. I poll-watched for Mayor Dinkins when he was elected as the first African-American mayor 
of New York City and other places as well, driven people to the polls, because this right to vote was won by, you know, blood and sweat and tears and also lots of lawsuits. And what we're seeing now with that retrenchment where even in my home state, North Carolina, there are these attempts by the right wing to steal back the right to vote from us. And if we are nonchalant about it and don't sit up and pay attention, we could lose that right again if we're not careful. So I'm very proud to say that my home church in North Carolina, many other churches and civil rights organizations are working diligently to ensure that we maintain and even improve the voting rights that we want. And I I thank them for their service in that area because, you know, this political climate that we're in, it, it's easy to slip back into Jim Crow and mm-hmm. what was before that. Yes, and the thing that I think can be disheartening to young people, my stepson is 25 and is, you know, very active politically and I'm very proud of him and his peers. I think, you know, not all young people are you know, nonchalant, there are many young people of all stripes, of all colors and backgrounds, who are very eager to progress forward. They don't see race among themselves. They have diverse friends and and international friends, and that's something that I had to learn, because when I grew up, things were so striated. It was, you know, black, white, this or the other, and you were either for or against one or the other. And that's not the way for us to survive in this world. Dr. King said it. Mr. Gandhi said it. Many, many others have said it. Um, You know, we must find a way to work together and live together or we'll all die together. I mean, look at all that we're facing, climate change, you know, um, the economy's getting slightly better, but there's still these huge income gaps between sort of the 1% and the rest of us who are working like crazy every day or looking to find a job. You know, there's a lot. There's a lot to be done, and there's a lot that we can do, and we know this because of the progress that the civil rights movement has shown us and the labor movement. So I still am inspired by all that has come before us and by people like you who, despite whatever has happened, are able to move beyond the circumstances and move forward and move move others forward, and I'm inspired by that and do my best to try to encourage others to find ways to move forward no matter what. Thank you. I definitely thank you, and I'm so glad I was able to have you on the show tonight. And just the history alone has been exciting for me. (laughs) 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 But I want to move in before we we get to to the links and your book. Mm -hmm. So tell us about that, because you do a lot, Deputy General of so many things. (laughs) Yeah, well, let me explain what that means. Um, When you are counsel of a company, for the most part, that's considered an in-house job. So what that means is rather than working at a law firm, which I've also done, which means the law firm itself works for basically any client, whoever, you know, walks in and pays the bills, um, that's very different than what I'm doing now, where I actually am an employee of Time, Inc., which means that I work for them, but I also help to defend them 
and in case there's any trouble. Right now what I do is try to help them avoid getting into trouble by working with my clients to review uh, ideas they have about marketing. It's a wonderful job. I've been there 16 years. I was brought there by a friend. We had worked for the government as federal prosecutors before many years ago. And uh, it's just been a great blessing, an opportunity to use my skills that I learned at Yale Law School and getting um, experience at both a law firm and clerking for a judge in Detroit before that. And it's just been um, really wonderful. Um, So I get to work with really smart people every day who challenge me. They keep me on my toes. And I have to try to be aware of what the new laws are, how do we stay compliant with them, what the new ways of marketing are, like social media, like what we're doing now. You know, even five or ten years ago, it wouldn't have been possible for me to call in and for you, you know, for us to do this, what we're doing now, and have many people all over the world have access to our conversation. Um, So these technological advances mean that um, those of us who are lawyers have to try to keep up with the changes in the technology and how they could impact a business. So that's a lot of what I think about every day is what can social media do uh, for us and then what are some ways perhaps we might not want to use it because it might not fit with our company policies or our company's reputation or our brands. So I feel fortunate that I get to have a little fun every day thinking about, you know, creative things. And then there are things that are challenging because, you know, sometimes things go wrong and I have to help solve the problems. But let me tell you, I've been out of law school now over 30 years, and I haven't regretted one day that I went to law school. Uh, there have been days that have been, you know, scary and challenging, but um, I, as a black American woman, um, in the sort of the first big wave of lawyers um, would encourage those people who are listening to our conversation. If you're considering law, I don't think it's too late, and I do not think there's a glut of lawyers of color. I think certainly you want to be mindful as you consider whether or not to take the LSATs and then apply to law schools, which can be expensive. But take a look at what's going on in your state now. You can just plug into the Internet, get a sense of how many lawyers are there. And also there's a vast number of careers. I can think of over 100 different ways that you could apply a law degree. Um, So I don't think it is a mistake to go to law school, but I think you should make an informed decision. Go interview some other lawyers that, you know, people that you see doing jobs that you might be interested in, whether you know them or not. You know, reach out, write a letter introduce yourself, you'll be surprised how many people, I mean, I do this at least once a month, meet with someone that I don't know who's interested in law as a career or in what they think my particular area of legal practice is. And I think we should continue to do that to encourage young people. Everyone needs a mentor. Everyone needs one to kind of get you and moving in the right direction. And we talk about social media. I mean, just 20 years ago, like, you're absolutely right. We would not be having this conversation. The web 20, 30 years ago, and I think about our ancestors, they could not have imagined you know, as slaves that we would ever get to this point. No, and one of the things I love, Maya Angelou was uh, one of my favorite authors, and 
I had the great privilege of meeting her when I was 25 and working in um, Greensboro and going to grad school at night and very unsure about how I should proceed. And, you know, she was the one who, in all in many of her poems, she says that, you know, we are the hope and dreams of the slaves so that even though they couldn't envision what a free life would look like, they fought and died anyway so that we could have it, even though they didn't even understand what it would mean for us. And the same thing for us, our parents and grandparents. Although they were free, often their choice of occupation was limited. Uh, some of them were able to get formal schooling. Some of them were not. They still insisted that we get education and that we find a way to move us forward, our families forward, and our people and nation forward. And um, that I find inspiring that, you know, like Dr. King always said, you know, life for me ain't been no crystal stair. But at the same time, he would say, you know, still step on that stair anyway. Even though you don't know what's at the top of the staircase, go ahead and start climbing. So I really think we all owe it to each other to encourage people to be their best selves, to reach out, to do what was considered impossible, you know, five or ten years ago. I think we should be doing the startups. We should be the entrepreneurs, and, of course, we are. Um, but I think we should be doing even more to share our gifts and talents with the world. Um, we are a mighty people. Um, I've been impressed by us my whole life. And no matter what anyone says, and no matter what any party says, and no matter what any politician says, um, we know that we are capable of greatness and that given the opportunity and education and, of course, the basic necessities of life, you know, a safe place to live, an opportunity to work, a way for our children to go to school and have what they need, a solid health care system, as our president has tried his best to provide us, we can do anything. You're absolutely right. Absolutely right. Now, tell us about the Better Business Bureau, your chair and board of directors. Yes. um, I am uh, in my third year as chairperson of the board of directors of the Better Business Bureau of the metropolitan New York area. There are probably, I believe, about 200 Better Business Bureaus across the country. And contrary to popular belief, they are not government agencies. Uh, Better Business Bureaus are not for profits. And they really are um, agencies that were started over 100 years ago to help consumers determine which businesses were good. You know, at the time, and as we know, there unfortunately, there are businesses that are in bad repute. They're out to scam you. We know that's still happening. And just like, you know, there can be a home improvement contractor that comes to your home, offers to repair your roof, and then opens a hole in your roof, you pay them a lot of money, and then they go away and never come back, and you're left with the hole in your roof and no money. That's sort of a, you know, an, an excessive example. But what we do is that we provided, of course, we've had to upgrade our technology as well. So now every Better Business Bureau in the country is online. Each local Better Business Bureau, known as BBBs, have their own website. So as a consumer, before you decide to hire a contractor, hire a builder, um, hire a real estate agent, um, you know, go buy some technology at a local store, you can go online to see whether or not anyone has filed a complaint with the BBB against that business. 
and then where businesses have been verified by us as an accredited business, we review everything about them, you know, how much they give back to the community, how quickly they get back to consumers, whether or not they're fully registered, because almost every business has to be registered with the city or state or county that they're in, that kind of thing. You can see all of that online on our websites. So for me, I've been involved with the BBB for over 10 years, and it's been a great privilege to be a part of such a great organization. Our BBB in uh, New York City alone, we receive something like, I don't know, 80,000 complaints a year. We get over a million hits on our website. Um, and we also get many thousands of complaints, which we help to resolve. Someone on our staff will reach out to the company that was complained about, give them an opportunity to respond, because sometimes it's a mistake or a misunderstanding. Um, and where it is, then we will post what the response is from the company. But where we get no response or whether you know we're not sure we can trust the response, we'll post that online as well. So you have a – and we have no – you know, investment in what the outcome is so that, you know, we are a neutral, if you will, screening device for a consumer. And it's a great way to find out about moving companies. My step one, stepson got a job a few years back and was about to move to another state. So I encouraged him to go online to see whether the moving company he thought he wanted to use was reputable. So anyway, without going on, that gives you an idea of what the BBB is. And our job as board of directors is to make sure that um, our staff, and we have a large staff with many people who are paid and also many um, students uh, who work part-time or for free as volunteers so that we can help those consumers who come in. And because we're in New York, we get both international tourists, so we need people who speak other languages, as well as uh, people who, you know, live and work in New York every day. So it's a great opportunity. I've enjoyed being a part of such a great organization, and I hope to continue. And I have always, you know, if I'm questionable, if something's questionable, I will dial into the to the BBB. <laughs> And I was thinking, I didn't know it was a not-for-profit. I also thought that it had to do, it's kind of like a government agency. Yeah, no, we get our money from the businesses that join us. You pay a fee, and it's a sliding fee depending on the size of your business. So I would say two-thirds of our businesses, and we have uh, many thousand uh, businesses in just in the New York area that belong to the BBB. Most of them are mom-and-pop shops. They're smaller, like beauty salons, barber shops, shoe shops, you know, small retailers. Um, and then there are big ones like my company, so Time Inc. also belongs. Longs, um, but we pay a little larger fee because we are uh, a bigger company. So we provide services. Um, there are opportunities for small businesses to come together to hear from experts. Maybe they need to know how to better manage their finances or how to get their taxes done or just how to market their businesses better. So our staff helps to bring together small businesses that might be alike um, we have speakers on the staff who have some expertise 
in some of these areas, technology, for example. Many small businesses don't have websites or they don't know how to get them up and running or they mistakenly think it would cost too much money so they miss out because nowadays if you don't have a website, it's hard for people to find you. People are not beginning to move away from, you know, I grew up with telephone directories and everything was in print. And as we know, that is still here, but it's going away. And younger people don't think to go to print first. They go online first. So we've tried to beef up the BBB websites at the national level and at the local level so that you can find businesses and find out whether or not you want to do business with them. Well, I'm, I'm thankful, thankful for that. I'm glad you gave me more of a, an understanding of actually what you're doing. And now let's move into the link. Incorporated. So you are the president of the Greater New York chapter, and it's an organization that I've always admired. And when I was in college, a friend of mine joined the organization, and it was wonderful to see the sisterhood and the outreach, the education portion of it. So give us the history of the links. Well, the Lynx Incorporated is a national organization. Um, it is primarily women of color who are businesswomen who want to give back to their community. And it was started by um, Mrs. Hawkins and Mrs. Um, uh, Scott in Philadelphia. They were uh, two friends who um, were, you know, looking for ways to improve their community. For the most part, they saw that, you know, education was not being offered in the same way and, you know, job opportunities were not as available. So they brought together um, seven other women. There were nine of them in 1946 and began the links. And um, the chapter that I belong to, Greater New York, was the first of now nine chapters in the Greater New York area. And we were established in 1949. And in fact, just two weeks ago, we had a huge celebration of our 65th anniversary. We honored the First Lady of New York, Shirlane McRae, and two wonderful businesswomen, Angela Guy, who's the Senior Vice President at L'Oreal USA, and uh, Wendy Lewis, who's the Senior Vice President at Major League Baseball. And um, we honor women who are doing great things uh, in the business world and who also are finding ways to give back to their community. Our organization is based on friendship and service. So in a way, it's like a sorority. You have to be invited to join by someone who's observed you and observed kind of what you do in your community. And um, I've been fortunate and blessed to be a part of Greater New York for now 11 years, and I was elected president last uh, May. So I'm very uh, privileged to work with 60 ladies here. Um, each chapter um, can have 60 members or more, and um, overall there are about 14,000 links throughout the United States and Canada, and some of us are in the Caribbean as well. And uh, we meet on a regular basis, and we provide services in five areas. We have what you would think of as a committee we call facets. So we have five of them. We have the arts, services to youth, national trends, international trends, and health and human services. So we break down, we divide all of our chapter into small groups, and each member is on a facet. And then each year we try to do 
um, good works in our community in those areas. So we work with young people. We mentor young people. We raise money to send young ladies to college and to graduate school, and we stay in touch with them and mentor them throughout their experience in the educational institutions. Um, over the last few years here in New York, we've been working hard on our seniors, a lot of our seniors, and we know that seniors are the largest growing uh, uh, part of our population. And uh, as a soon-to-be senior myself, um, one of the things we realized is that seniors aren't getting the information they need about financing, health, um, you know, um, how to take care of yourself, mental health. We're worried about elder abuse. We're also worried about domestic violence, which unfortunately is rising, along with some of the other inequities we're seeing, um, both among the African-American community but also in the immigrant communities and other communities as well. It doesn't matter how much money you have or don't have, whether you have a job or not, domestic violence could touch your home and your community. So we're working hard to raise community consciousness about that, we are working with a cohort of 44 women in Haiti because, as you know, after the earthquake, um, there was a lot of displacement. People lost their homes, and many people, unfortunately, are still living in tent camps. So we found that women were being assaulted when they would leave the camps to go to get water or to try to get work or other things. So we're working with a small group of women to give them shelter, to give them what we call micro-lending, a way to get uh, started with jobs, our small businesses, and to also support them emotionally and spiritually as they heal from, you know, what has happened to them. So we work very hard in these areas, as do our sister links all over the country, and it's been a great privilege to be a part of this organization where your friends come together, and many of these ladies have accomplished, you know, quite a great deal, and we really do believe the mantra that to whom much is given, you know, much is um, expected. So you really have to give some of the blessings that have been shared with you. And that is what the links is all about. We're about friendship and service, and we try hard to link with other organizations. We have partnerships with the AARP um, to, to get word out to seniors and with all kinds of other groups all over the country, primarily in the areas that, that I mentioned. And um, we hope to continue to do that for all the years to come. And how can someone find out more uh, more information about the organization if someone would like to join? Well, you, you have to be invited. As I mentioned, it's like a sorority. But you certainly can learn more about our work and what we do by just going to www.thelinksinc.org, or you can Google us on or look us up really on via any browser or any website searcher. Um, we are a national organization. We own our own building in uh, Washington, our D.C. Our national president is Dr. Glenda Newell-Harris. She's a physician based in San Francisco, California, and she was elected at our national assembly last July. So if you go to thelinksync.org, you can see everything about us, sort of who we are, how long we've been there. You can learn more about our founders and all of the programs that we've sponsored in the United States and worldwide. And you can also learn more about the um, chapters because there are many chapters in every state and in the Caribbean. Um, so I would encourage people to just look us up and you can find out more about us. 
That is wonderful. I'm so happy that you mentioned all the different areas because these are all the areas that we're really facing today. And I mean, on a massive scale with domestic violence and working with our seniors and working with our young people, you have to have, you know, especially for women, a sister circle, someone that's going to bring you in, help you grow, and you can help the next person grow. And raising money for college is always good, always. <laughs> yes, and what we know is that college costs a lot more than it did. I know when I think about what I paid for law school, you know, graduating in 1983, and what young people are facing now, I mean, it's just exponentially more. You know, it's so much more, and it's such a huge debt. Like I was on scholarship, I worked part-time, and I had a loan, and it took me 20 years to pay back those loans. And I remember thinking I would never finish paying and that it was ridiculous, you know, for it to cost that much. And now that's nothing. It's just a drop in the bucket, but what I paid to what students are undertaking now just to go to college and then to go beyond that. I have friends whose children are, you know, going to medical school and other graduate schools. So I think that, you know, every cent that we can raise to support young people who show promise um, is, is a cent, you know, it's well worth doing. So um, we hosted our luncheon and fashion show two weeks ago here in New York, and, and we did very well and raised quite a bit of money, and that will go back into our community programming for, for next year. And all of our sister links do the same thing. They host many different kinds of programs and book salons and trips and all kinds of things to raise money so that we can continue to support our young people. And I'm glad, uh, you know, when you think about because this takes us kind of back to where we're talking about our our history, and so someone is someone has made a sacrifice for us to be able to do this. And I think about some of the sororities and the fraternities. Our people had vision so that we would get to the point where we are now, with the economy being different, our political climate being different. If you want to go to school. For a lot of students, once they graduate, it's like $100,000 or more, and then you may or may not be able to, to get a job. But when you have these strong organizations that we have in our community, it's so worth it, so worth it. I I agree, and you know, when I graduated in 1969, um, I had participated. My mother is a Delta, and I'm sort of a lapsed Delta. I'm ashamed to say I haven't been able to do more than what I mean. I have so much going on, but my mom's been a Delta for more than 60 years, and uh, my aunt uh, for more than 50, and I have another aunt who's an AKA. And we should say also that sororities and fraternities have also always had a great tradition of helping to send our people to college, and we need to continue to support them and support that work. The Deltas paid for my books, my first full year of college. I also won a four-year scholarship based on my grades, so I was blessed that my parents did not have to sacrifice greatly to send me to school, nor my brother. Both of us worked hard so that, you know, our parents would not have to, you know, suffer. But, you know, they certainly helped us, and both my brother and I worked and had part-time jobs, just like what people are doing now. It's just that it just costs, as you noted, so much more. So that's why I think we want to encourage 
our young people to take their lives seriously, to value themselves, to value each other. You know, it worries me when I see young girls, you know, having babies before they're ready or young men, just not taking their responsibilities seriously. And even though we see in the media, you know, images of ourselves that are not always positive, um, to me, if you know yourself well, if you know your history well, you have a strong family, strong church, strong community, strong friends even, you can see that, you know, we have to look beyond that. We are much greater than you know, those negative images. And just think when the slaves who had no images, there was no TV, there was no nothing, and, you know, brutal treatment, and yet they were able to put their faith in God, and they were able to believe in us and to work hard to get freedom and get education so that we could become who we are. So we owe that to them, and it seems to me that now we owe the future, you know, pushing our children to become the best they can be so that they can then build on the foundations that we were given. Absolutely. Well said. You know, for each of our topics, I could listen to you for hours on end, but I'm trying to keep it tight so I don't take up too much of your time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy that we got a chance to connect. Now tell us about your, your publications. Well, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about the Little Black Book of Success, Laws of Leadership for Black Women, which um, I wrote several years ago now with my good friends Elaine Merrill Brown and Marsha Haygood. We started thinking about this in 2007. Elaine uh, was then a producer at HBO, and she and Marsha, Marsha was head of HR at New Line Cinema, a movie company, and uh, we all worked for what was then Time Warner, and uh, we'd heard about each other, but we hadn't met. And we met with a group of other sisters, all of whom were fairly senior executives in companies uh, in the media business. And over time, over a period of years, we met quarterly, really as a sort of networking and support group for each other. Many of us were kind of first and onlys, meaning that there were no other black people or black women or any women or whatever in the groups that we were in or managing or running. And we there were six of us, and then there later became eight of us. We met in 2000. So we were really friends first. And then around 2004 or five, I think, Elaine wrote two murder mysteries, and they did very well with Random House. And um, let me see, Lemon City was the first one, and Playing by the Rules was the second. And then she, she, she was the divorced mom of a lovely young man, and she wanted to write a book about leadership for black teenagers. She couldn't find anything. And she tried and tried and tried. This It wasn't coming easily like her novels had come. So after a while, she came to the group of women that we met with. We called ourselves Girls' Night Out. And she asked us if we would be willing to work with her. So uh, Marsha and I held up our hands, not knowing what we were getting into. And over a period of a couple of years, um, we wrote the book that we wish we had had when we were coming along in our careers. All of us have worked more than 30 years and have made mistakes that were avoidable if only we knew, you know, then what we know now. So the Little Black Book of Success identifies 40 principles of leadership that really apply to anyone, black or white, male or female, profit or not-for-profit, 
Um, it really doesn't matter. But we wrote the book especially for black women because in 2007, when we started doing our research, we couldn't find such a book. There was no book out of 7,000 books on leadership that we looked at that contained a reference to black women in the title or in the table of contents. And we thought, well, this is just ridiculous, knowing all we know about the great black women of history. So we thought we'll bring our you'll bring black women to the leadership conversation. So we don't think of the book as exclusive. To the contrary, we think of it as inclusive. We were fortunate that Random House picked us up, published our book in March of 2010. It's still selling well. It's usually in the top three among the books on leadership and management sold on Amazon.com. So we spent the last few years out on the circuit talking about our book all over the country, and um, we've made a lot of friends, and we're just in the process of finishing our second book, which is a workbook to accompany our first. That is amazing, the level of research, and there was nothing there for black women? Not, yeah, not then, because now when you think about it, that's now almost eight years ago. So there were lots of books about leadership, that many thousands, but nothing that really talked about our experience, which is unique. Now they're quite a lovely, there's some wonderful books out there, and we're excited about all of them. We all encourage each other. There are many authors, men and women, um, and both black and, and, and white who have written, and there are also some wonderful, Jane Hyun, who's written about the Korean experience. So there's a lot of similarities for people coming into corporate America, particularly coming into the executive role, where there may not be anybody else who looks like you, and there may be very unrealistic expectations of what you do. And um, here again, like everything else we've talked about tonight, is where your faith, your foundation, your family, and your support group really matters to kind of help you hold yourself together, hold your head high, and move forward. And um, we call in the book, we call your the group that supports you your success team because we believe that there's always a way to move forward. You always have a choice whether you make a mistake, whether someone else makes a mistake in terms of what they assume you can handle or not handle, whether you're either given the opportunity you asked for or you find that you're not being given the opportunity and you wonder if you should leave. Um, we address all of those things in the book. We also talk about emotional intelligence, the fact that often, you know, we have to know more about the feelings of others than they know about ours, and sometimes you get angry. You don't want to let that anger, you know, get in your way. Um, we talk about choosing your battles. We talk about um, networking, even if you're a shy person, because, you know, these days you have to figure out a way to do it, even if you're not necessarily comfortable at first doing it. So we try to give ways that anyone can tap into her leadership potential and move herself forward into the position that she was always supposed to have. And that's available on Amazon. It is really anywhere books are sold. So, yes, Amazon.com, Books A Million, RandomHouse.com. Um, and I would say to learn more about us, please go to our website, www.LittleBlackBookOfSuccess.com. And you can find out all about us. We have bios. We have excerpts from the book there. We can tell you where we'll be speaking next. And we also have tributes from readers who've read our book and have said how it's been helpful to them. 
And they're not all black women either. They're men, uh, they're young men, um, they're older women, um, and they're of all races and all economic backgrounds. So we're very excited. Amazing. And today I was uh, looking around, and so you, you're on Pinterest. We are. <laughs> we are so thrilled that um, I didn't know it. One of my nieces called me up to say, Auntie, um, you're on the recommended reading list for Pinterest.com. Well, I didn't even know that Pinterest had a recommended reading list. So we were just so excited, and we've just been thrilled. This has been a blessing. The book has made friends for us all along the way. And two quick things, if I could say, because the other two women uh, are also African-American. We did not grow up together. In fact, we did not meet each other until uh, March of 2000, and now, 15 years later, we're still friends, we're co-authors, we're also business partners, we run Leeds LLC, which is a leadership consulting company, and we really want to debunk this myth that black women, or women, period, but certainly black women, cannot work together, cannot be friends, and also be in business. Um, We're not the only ones. There are lots of uh, black families that run businesses and have done so for years, but I think it's important also for us to model, you know, working together in a cooperative way. These ladies are my very best friends. We live different lives. We don't live in the same states. We don't do the same things. Um, One of us is retired. Two of us are still working every day. Um, We have different family circumstances, but we still love each other and respect each other, and I think that that is a part of what we try to share when we go out on the road and speak with people. I'm so glad that you that you made that comment about about the myth, debunking the myth. That was that's so powerful because that's like if you if you want to say like a bad rap, you know, for black women that we can't work together. Yeah, I agree. It really is, and I grew up my whole life with the whole crabs and a barrel thing and the whole, you know, this and that. And I certainly am not going to say that it's always hunky-dory. I've had, you know, we all have had some bad experiences with people, whatever color they were. But I would rush to say that more often than not, my uh, experiences have been positive, and some of that has had to do with me and the way that I've approached the situation. So I try hard to expect the best and be prepared for the best. And if the best doesn't happen, then I try to figure out what I'm supposed to learn from the situation. And then I try to bless the person because who knows what they're dealing with. Um, it may be something, you know, much greater than than anything that I know. And then sometimes, let's just face it, sometimes it's just really horrible and you need to just extricate yourself from the situation. So it depends, and you just pray for clarity in terms of making the right decision. That's true. And I want to also get in there uh, being selected by Savvy Magazine. So tell us about that. Oh, thank you so much. I just learned, I guess, about two months ago that Savoy Magazine was putting together a roster of the 100 most influential black attorneys in the United States, and it is my great privilege to be one of those 100 people. And um, let me tell you, these are some of the great legal minds uh, in the country, so I feel very humbled and privileged to be included in that roster, and that was published in Savoy Magazine in its March 2015 issue. So it's just out now on newsstands, and you can go to www.savoy.com to learn more about that. That is awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. This is wonderful. 
And, you know, I was looking at your bio, and you, you were talking about being a change agent. Change agent. I was like, that's exactly what she is because you're working with people of different ages, different backgrounds, different, different ethnicities, different organizations. And so you are really, I'm in awe, I admire you so much for not just doing what you do for yourself, but you're also doing for so many others. That is just admirable. Well, thank you, and I may I say the same thing about you, um, and I think one of the things we both know is that when you extend yourself a little bit on behalf of others, um, even on those days where, you know, sometimes you get a little pushback or someone isn't as nice as they could be, for the most part, it's very positive, it's uplifting, and you are doubly blessed for every blessing that you give out. And certainly that's how I was raised in the First Missionary Baptist Church in Smithfield, North Carolina, where my mother uh, has been Minister of Music for 60 years. She's just retired, and um, she's going to be 89 in a couple of weeks. So we are blessed to still have her. We lost my dad two years ago at the age of 90. So I have to give all of this to her because they raised, and my father, they raised me and my brother to be the people that we are, and I feel very fortunate um, because this whole notion of sharing what you've been given came from them. I watched them, and, you know, there wasn't a day that went by that they didn't extend themselves a little further. And it wasn't that we had so much, but it was just that whatever we did have, um, they shared. So I'm trying to, to follow that that model. Wonderful parents, and I'm so sorry to hear about your dad, but that's as we've been talking about, you have, you do, you have to extend yourself to make someone else be able to extend themselves so that we're all working for the greater, the greater good. Absolutely, absolutely. Right, and how can people get in contact with you if they want to ask you about the links or Better Business Bureau or Time, Inc.? Uh, what's the best way to, to reach you or connect with you? The best way to do it is probably through the book website, which is the www.littleblackbookofsuccess.com because we have uh, email access there, and so um, and we will regularly check that email. So feel free, you know, they can email us questions. They can ask if we want to do a speaking engagement. They can ask about the book, or they can – pinpoint each one of us, including me, and direct a particular question to me, and I'll get that and do my best to get back very quickly. Okay. Rhonda, I want to thank you for being on the Stroke Diva Fabulous Show. It has been a joy and a pleasure, and we have a guest that said wonderful show, a delightful guest, and of course, you are. It's like being the hostess with the mostest. That's you. <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much, Camaria. I am just so, so excited and proud that you would have invited me to take part. So thank you. Congratulations on your show. God bless you as you continue uh, to move forward. Thank you so much. I'm going to have you hold on for a second. But okay. I want to thank our guests for, for tuning in to the Stroke Diva Fabulous Show. Please share the show on your network, on your circle, whether it's Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Google+, all these wonderful sites that we're all like linked into. 
So definitely share. The show will be able to download in about 15 to 30 minutes and share with your group that the show is archived so folks can go and listen at any time. This is Kamaria Richmond, your host. Enjoy the rest of your week. It's going to be fabulous.